Friends, although the events of Daniel's chapters 1 and 3 were long ago and far away, the issues that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, or Abednego if you prefer, the issues that they were confronting, the issues that they faced, were not unique in any way. And largely, they faced a fundamental question that is outlined by the psalmist in Psalm 137, and you'll know it well, particularly if you are conversant with 1980s pop music, because a certain pop group, Boney M, sung this psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for songs of joy. Our tormentors demanded songs. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord whilst in a foreign land? Good question. Pertinent question to the captives there in Babylon. But I put it to you, equally pertinent a question to you and I. How can we sing the songs of the Lord whilst in a foreign land? Was it possible to live as a foreigner in a foreign land amidst a foreign people speaking a foreign language with an alien culture surrounded by all manner of foreign gods and their temples and yet still remain distinctively committed to the God of their fathers. That was the question they faced. And the immediate application for us here seems so obvious it barely needs mentioning. From a preacher, so I'll mention it anyway. The Apostle Peter reminds you and I in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that you and I, if we're in Christ this morning, for Christians, we are aliens and strangers in the land. Foreigners, if you like. As Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. And so the question that was facing Daniel and his colleagues all those centuries ago is in some ways the very same question that we face. How can we sing the songs of the Lord whilst in a foreign land? There's an old chorus I used to sing back home in Liverpool. You may know it. This world is not my home. I am just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. My Savior beckons me from heaven's open shore. And I just can't feel at home in this world anymore. The sad thing is too many professing Christians feel far too at home in this world, don't they? But if we're in Christ and Christ is in us, then like Daniel and his colleagues So we in Christ face this fundamental question. How can we sing the songs of the Lord whilst in a foreign land? 
Well, we can, I believe. And I'll go further. We must, for the sake of this community and our loved ones, our family and friends. Firstly, I want to comment upon what is an obvious dilemma here for Daniel and his colleagues. Because for the creme de la creme of the exiles, it was, remember, all change. And fundamentally, four things changed as they were forcibly carried off from the southern kingdom of Judah into exile there in Babylon. And the first thing that changed, of course, was the location. From freedom in Jerusalem to exile in Babylon. And it seems there was absolutely nothing that they could do about this location change. But friends, for some, this alone would be enough to silence their singing and to halt their songs. Wouldn't you agree? Location change. It's amazing, isn't it? A simple location change from glorious worship on a Sunday morning in church to perhaps the normal day-to-day routine on a Monday morning. That simple location can change, can silence our song. It does often. But for the sake of our community, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, it should not. We ought to be singing the same glorious songs of Zion on a Monday morning as we have on a Sunday. The second thing that changed was their education. They were sent, as it were, to the University of Babylonia where they would be to be taught the language and the literature, the ways, the cultures of Babylon. And so they were re-educated. The Babylonians attempted to reprogram the minds of the brightest and the best of these Israelite exiles. And arguably, we're reminded here that at the heart of any process of re-education, there is the desire to change the way men and women think. And so change the convictions that drive them and change the lifestyles that marks them out. So the location changed, the education changed. Thirdly, the diet changed. These young exiles were given new food and wine from off the king's table. Now, initially this seems somewhat innocuous, does it not? What was this all about? What's really going on here? Was it simply that King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to seduce these young exiles by offering them a piece of the good life? No more of the rigors of Judah for you guys. Taste of the good life. I know often a taste of the good life is enough to extinguish the songs of Zion. Taste of the good life is enough to extinguish our songs of Zion. It might be that that was King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, primary objective, but I'm not sure. The more likely explanation here concerning this food, from my point of view at least, is that Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to break these exiles of their annoying conviction that somehow, some way, they were different. And one of the ways in which The Israelites were always declaring their distinctiveness, remember, was in the things they ate. 
So maybe King Nebuchadnezzar was seducing them with a taste of the good life, but perhaps more so he was trying to rob them of their distinctiveness. Finally, their names were changed in verse 7. The names of these young exiles were changed for actually names of Babylonian deities. Um, It's noticeable, I suppose, if you study modern day cults, that they follow a similar program to this, don't they? With their converts. They isolate their converts. They try to relocate their converts, separate them from their families. They re-educate their converts. They tell them that all their previous teachings was wrong and they indoctrinate them in falsehood. And often these cults will rename, rename their converts. Now you can argue that uh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Names don't matter. But is that true? Names do matter. I know. Because my mother, in her logic, named me Douglas. What on earth was she thinking about? And I went through my adult, my adolescent years being mocked and ridiculed and because of my name. Dougal, I was called, and all manner of various derivatives. I was even, for those who know the magic roundabout, I was even called Florence. You laugh. You say you're laughing. I've been emotionally bruised and battered for years. And you just entering into the joke there. Thinking, oh, it's all innocence. And yet deep down I'm breaking. It hurts. Names do matter. You've heard the story, of course, of the lawyer called Odd. Mr. Justice Odd. Well, he didn't like his name. Throughout his life, Mr. Justice Odd was mocked and rebuked and ridiculed because of his name. And he hated his name so much that towards the end of his life, he made a resolution in his will. That when he died and a memorial stone was erected at his grave, he would not have his name inscribed on the memorial stone. Instead, he'd have the simple inscription, Here lies an honest lawyer. The sad thing is, when people were visiting the graveyard and saw the stone, they said, that's odd. (laughs) (laughs) Names matter. So Nebuchadnezzar attempted to make these exiles think differently and therefore live differently. And notice, he didn't seek to do it so much by blatant demand, but by subtle coercion. You know the illustration of the frog, don't you? You throw a frog into boiling water, it will immediately jump out. But if you put a frog into cold water and heat the water up slowly, it will boil to death. And that's what King Nebuchadnezzar was doing here. Very cleverly, very subtly, He sought to rob these young exiles of their distinctive nature as those who were convinced they belonged to Yahweh, the God of their fathers. Cleverly, quietly, subtly, slowly. So the choice was there for Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and uh, Daniel, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What 
were they going to embrace? They, they came to an important decision. They had to make a decision. What were they going to embrace? What were they going to allow King Nebuchadnezzar to, to change in their lives? Well, the location had changed. It seems they had no say in the matter. It seems they accepted the free education. Well, they weren't stupid, were they? If you're offered a free education, particularly with the way fees are today, then you're going to accept the free education, I guess. That's a good idea. And it seems as though they they kind of embraced the name change. Though for you theologians amongst you, it's an interesting study, because Daniel never embraced the name Belteshazzar, while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego appeared to have embraced their names. But they kind of embraced the name. But there was a point beyond which they were not prepared to go. And we read there in verse 8 that Daniel and his colleagues, because they were with him, they, they resolved not to defile themselves with the royal food and wine from off the king's table. They were prepared to embrace so much, but there came a point where they had to draw a line. So far, but no further. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, We're living in a world that not so much by blatant demand here in the free West, certainly, but by subtle coercion is endeavoring to rob us of our distinctiveness. Rob us of what it means to belong to Yahweh, the God of our fathers. Very cleverly, very subtly. And we, like Daniel and his colleagues, need to make a decision. How far... Will we allow the world to dictate to us what we should accept, what we should embrace, what we should do, where we should go, what we should say? How far do we allow the world to dictate to us? Well, we do certain things because the world, our culture, tells us so. We dress a certain way. Why? Because our culture kind of tells us so. And so we do embrace a certain amount. But I put it to you, friends, that there comes a point where as Christians, we have to draw a line. For Daniel and his colleagues, it was the issue of food. They wouldn't defile themselves on the issue of food. For you and I, it'll be something different. We we, we can take pork, praise God, because I quite like pork. Uh, But it's not a food issue. But uh, there will be an issue in this life where we have to draw a line and say to the world, the flesh and the devil, so far, but no further, because I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me and I want to maintain my distinctive position as a child of God. So the challenge is, what's the Holy Spirit saying to us? Where is that line to be drawn in our lives? Have we crossed it already? You know you will. You'll know you will. Because you'll lose the joy. You'll lose a sense of the presence of God. You'll you'll become somewhat frustrated in your Christian walk. And you won't be so passionate and, and zealous and aggressive for the things of God anymore. So if you've crossed the line, my friends, may God, I pray, bring you back. But where's that line? There's an old, old book by Derek Prime. Anybody read Derek Prime? I'll be surprised. It's, a, it's one of the dustiest books on my shelf. And in that book by Derek Prime, there's an illustration, a story of an old chaplain who used to work amongst the sailors at Portsmouth Docks. 
Uh, he was old, he was near retirement, but he still did his best to exhort the young sailors in the things of God. On one occasion, it was early in the afternoon, and he was walking along the docks and saw some drunken sailors on the docks. It broke his heart. So early in the afternoon, drunken sailors. And, and he went up to these drunken sailors, and he sought to encourage them in the things of God. Encourage them to live a holy life, a good life. Well, these soldiers in the drunken state become abusive towards the old chaplain. And they mocked and ridiculed him and said, well, it's okay for you, chaplain. You don't face the pressures that we face. You don't understand the problems that we have. And the, drunk, and the chaplain, wise old chaplain, put his hands on the shoulders of, the, of these sailors. And he pointed them out to sea. And he says, look, guys, look. So they looked. And he said this, one ship sails west. One ship sails east. But by the self-same winds that blow, it's the set of the sails and not the gales that determine which way they go. How we need these days young Christian men and women who will date their boy and girlfriends and set their sails for purity. How we need in these days academics who will walk the corridors of academia and set their sails for truth. How we need these days Christian families, Christian men and women who live in their communities and set their sails for righteousness. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, oh, they, they embraced so much that the king forced upon them. But there was a point beyond which they were not prepared to go. Difficult a decision it was. And my friends, I put it to you. Don't blame the gales, the buffetings of life. You make a decision. Who do you decide for? Are you going to set your sails to live a holy, pure, spotless life for the sake of God and His kingdom? If you do, then payday one day, you'll be glad. Let's pray.